Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and turn with us today to Hebrews chapter 1 as we continue in our exposition of this book, focusing today on verses 7 and 8. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through verse 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness or uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment." Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Simply for the sake of a reminder, I want to go back even before I start reading from my notes here. I want to go back specifically to verse 4. Because verse 4 sets the context for what he's about to say in not only the remaining 10 verses of chapter 1, but also what he says through chapter 2. Because chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2 kind of function as a unit together. Um, Because here you'll notice in verse 4, he says, having become as much superior to angels. Note that because that's the whole context of everything he writes in these first two chapters. What he's doing is he's addressing the issue of the superiority of Jesus Christ, the Son, specifically in this case, over angels. 
Now, the theme of this book, all 13 chapters basically, from beginning to end, has to do with the superiority of Christ or the fact that Christ is better than, and he goes through a litany of things. He talks about angels and priests and sacrifices and ordinances and all those things that he addresses throughout this whole book. And Christ is superior to all those things. But he starts here specifically in verse 4, much superior to angels. And I'm not going to go back for the sake of time and address what might have precipitated that concern over angels. And we, we've addressed in two weeks particularly as to what might have precipitated it. But why did he create angels? Well, our verse in Hebrews 1.7 and also Hebrews 1.14 answers this question for us. In verse 7 of our text of Hebrews 1, it refers to them as ministers, and verse 14 refers to them as ministering spirits. Now we clearly know in context of verse 7 that ministers and angels are the same. He didn't change between angels and men. Angels and men. Now ministers are, are angels, and ministering spirits are both references and have to do to angels. And both of these references have to do with serving or pertaining to service. So here's my point. First and foremost, they are God's servants. God created them to serve Him. To serve His purposes. They serve Him. Then the question is, how do... Does God need any service? Which could be a good question. But first and foremost, they are God's servants. They serve Him by carrying out His purposes in the earth. Could God have done it without them? Certainly. But God in His sovereignty and His immeasurable wisdom purposed for whatever reason, which is reserved for Him to know and Him alone, creates these beings to do work. For Him. To serve Him. To perform service for Him. And that service that they carry out has to do with earth. It has to do with men. I can get sidetracked very easily. I'll come back to that in a minute. But they serve Him by carrying out His purposes in the earth. For example, and there's so many illustrations I can give you, but in the Old Testament, for example, we know that angels were responsible for carrying out judgment. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 16 through and 17, a plague upon Israel was brought about by an angel. And the leaders of the, uh, leader, leaders of the uh, Syrian army in 2 Chronicles 32, 21 were smitten by an angel. Could God have just waved His hand and all this stuff would have happened? Certainly. But God, in His Spirit, Sovereignty chose these creatures He had made to serve Him and to serve His purposes in the earth to do this work. And so He sends Him. Can you imagine the power of an angel? Well, they serve Him by carrying out... Then in the New Testament, when, when God has King Herod struck dead because He did not give God the glory, that was carried out, by the way, by an angel. An angel smote Him. And then eschatologically, talking about end times, the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath recorded for us in Revelation 16 in verse 1. Who does that? Angels. 
So in the Old Testament, and there's so many more illustrations. In the Old Testament, angels serve God by doing His purposes or His work. And then in the New Testament, the very same way. And then when Jesus returns, guess what? According to Matthew 16, Luke 9, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, He will return with what? A company of angels. However, verse 14 of Hebrews 1 puts part of this service in the context of serving for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So I'm jumping to verse 14 for a moment. This is a clear reference to believers. They serve God, yes, but they serve God for our sake. Now get this, and I want, I'll just camp here for a moment. This is a clear reference to believers. Angels are servants of God for the sake of the elect, for the sake of believers. Well, in the Old Testament, for example, one illustration of service of angels to believers is given in Daniel chapter 6. I bet you know what that reference is, don't you? Darius is, is, is uh, Daniel is spared, spared death by the mouth of lions. Remember the story? King Darius, who's been tricked, by the way, into making a decree that the, the antagonist who wanted to get Daniel had tricked him into signing and to keep his word as a king, he had to follow through. And so he had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. All night long, Darius was miserable thinking about what must be happening to Daniel. He must by now be shredded to pieces. Early the next morning, at the time the sun came up, Darius runs from his residence down to the den where the lions and Daniel has been thrown into, and he hollers and asks, Daniel, are you there? And in verse 22 of Daniel 6, he hears the most beautiful voice. It's not the burp of, of well-fed lions. Daniel responds to Darius's cry. In fact, the, the English Standard Version says, Darius with a cry of anguish. And he didn't just come up just... I mean, he was like, Oh, Daniel, are you there? I'm here. And in verse 22, listen to what Daniel says. My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Not angels. Angel. An angel walks into a lion's den. And they just shut. And the whole night, Daniel says they're watching these lions and they're watching him going. <laughs> they can do nothing. Do nothing. And then in the New Testament, we have record of angels opening prison doors releasing the apostles from imprisonment, Acts chapter 5, verse 19. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is received by or rescued by an angel from imprisonment in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 10. And even in our day, there have been and continue to be accounts given of angels assisting believers. And let me just establish a point here. I'm not, I haven't heard all of them, and none of us have ever heard all of them, but many of us have heard 
a lot of them. And I'm not saying that I believe everything, but I will tell you what I do believe. I do believe that they are as active today in carrying out service to God for the sake of the elect as they were then. So I do believe they're still very active in the earth today and will continue to be throughout human history. We see that even through Revelation. Christians need to be very careful though when it comes to angelic encounters. Think of it, think of it this way. And I think it's fair to say most angelic encounters occur without us having been aware of them. I bet you that many of us, if not all of us, have probably at some time had an encounter without even knowing it. There's been times, even in my life, I've been suspicious of that. And I've left situations wondering, what was that? Where did I... I'm not even going to go into specifics, but I'm thinking of a couple of specific times when it was, it was so strange, I've just actually asked myself after the fact, what did I just experience? But rather than get caught up in that, that happened, basically, God didn't announce, oh, you know, it wasn't like in that program, Touched by an Angel, I like your phrase of torch by an Angel, um, where suddenly the angel glows and says, I am an angel sent from God. That's not the way it is. Not the way it is. Most of the time, they come, do their, do their service, and they're gone. And they're gone. You don't even really know that they have been there. But they've done exactly. There's been times, I bet you, some of us have been spared. And wondered how we were spared. Look back after the fact and go, oh, I can see, I'm not going to call an illustration. I just think one in particular, my mind, and our lives were spared. And I literally witnessed... We were going off the road on I-75. Remember pulling a trailer? I knew, I looked at her and said, we're, 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 we're gone. We're gone. I literally, folks, took my hands off the steering wheel. We were dropping. And I watched my steering wheel snatch and come back on the road and straighten up. I don't know. I could only speculate. You could say, well, that was coincidental. I don't know. But I do know that probably many of us have had experiences like that in our lives and we look back. But the danger is looking or imposing things on angelic encounters. An inordinate, an inordinate infatuation with angels puts the believer in a very dangerous place. And let me explain this to you. For example... We do not get doctrine from angels. We are warned not to get doctrine. I don't, I don't go home and pray, Lord, I'd I like an angel to come in and teach me tonight. Oh, they, they might come. And you might get some teaching. But it, it's more than likely, well, I can tell you, not more than likely, it's not going to be, that's not, that's not the way God teaches us. We don't get our doctrine from angels. We get our doctrine from what? From the Word of God. Who is our teacher? The Spirit of God. Who is the author of the Word of God? Satan, who by the way is a fallen angel, disguises himself according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, as an angel of light. And what does he desire to do? He desires to lead us off the truth, away from the truth. 
And so I've, I've jokingly said before, I said Satan will, will never walk in carrying a pitchfork with a pointy tail and red horns. Everybody would run for cover. But he'll walk in as the most uh, appealing, seemingly innocent, most acceptable, silver-tongued devil. And in doing so, will lead people into damnation and to heresy. So I don't want to be taught by an angel. I want to open the Word of God, bow my head and pray for the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this Word, to take this Word and teach me. So, we are not given... Something else which is very controversial today. We are not given... Listen carefully. Not given our own angel... to dispatch at our whim or our fancy. Angels are our guardians at times, but we don't have, quote, our own personally assigned guardian angel. You don't find that in the Scripture, by the way. Especially dispatching. Nowhere in the Bible are believers given the authority to command, order, or send angels to do their bidding. Nowhere in the Bible. Hebrews is clear. They are servants of God. Who does the dispatching? God does. Where is our communication? Not to angels. Our communication is to God. The clear teaching of the Bible. or no, We can't send angels to do our bidding either, but the clear teaching of the Bible is that angels are the Lord's servants sent by Him to serve. As believers, we are the benefactors. That's the great news here. We're the benefactors of their service, which is carried out according to the will of God. God says go. God says to them, go. My servant needs you. Go. It might be because we have saying, where has our communication been? We may find ourselves in a hard place saying, God, help me. Lord, I, 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 I need your help. I, and of course, God can do it by any means He so chooses, but it may very well be at the moment that God would send us angelic assistance, but it's not because I have commanded angels to perform for me. It is because I have what? Cried out to the Father, and He whose servants they are sends them to do His bidding in regards to me. And in regards, I like it that way, to be honest with you. Because, because He knows the end from the beginning. And everything in between. And so He knows exactly what, exactly what... I don't even pray for God to send angels. I just say, God help! And let Him choose what means. He chooses to do it. We do not worship angels. Colossians 2.18 Revelation 19.10 We do not pray to angels. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's only one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. But again, the Bible does not instruct us to seek angelic appearances. You have people praying for, to encounter angels. Psalm 91 verse 11 is very clear. It's a psalm that many like to memorize. A beautiful psalm. Listen to what he says. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It does not say, for you will command his angels. For what? He will 
command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Who does the commanding? The Lord. The Lord. They're His disposal. They, they stand waiting for His command. They are constantly at His disposal. All the time. In regards to angels, caution should be the position we take. And we should not go any further than the Scripture teaches and warns. And that's where people get into trouble. They go way beyond what the Scripture teaches. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 1. Look at what he says. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, or uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Paul's. The word but there at the beginning of verse 8 indicates as a transition from angels back to the Son. It also indicates further comparison of the Son to angels. And so what our author does, he picks back up on his treatise on the Son's superiority to angels. What our author has, author has to say is without a doubt some of the most important truth concerning the Son that you will find anywhere in the Scripture. You'd be hard-pressed anywhere else in the New Testament to find the, the significance and the depth of what the author says here. And let's see if we can kind of carefully break this down. First, citing Psalm 45, verse 6. He says, Your throne... Now note, this, this is essential. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Two great truths concerning the Son in that one statement. Number one, it is the Father's acknowledgement of God the Son. The Father Himself acknowledges God the Son. By virtue of the very testimony of the Father, Jesus Christ is declared by the Father to be what? God. He's not an angel. He's not a sub-God of some sort. Here you have in this verse what may very well be the most emphatic, irrefutable proof of the deity of Jesus Christ in the whole body. What, in the whole Bible. What better testimony can you get than the testimony of God, the Father, who says right here, Your throne, O God. The Father calling something else that's not God, God? For there is, in Psalm He says, or Isaiah, I'm sorry, He says, I've searched the heavens to see if there were another one like Me and I found none. And yet here, He says, Your throne, O God. Referring to His Son. The deity of Christ. And, and who does it come from? It comes from the Father Himself. And then secondly, it is God's declaration, not only that, this, that, that Jesus Christ is God the Son, but that this Son is eternal. Remember, angels had a beginning. This Son had no beginning. The Son is eternal. Jesus is God eternal, and His throne is eternal. This is not the case for angels. Once again, they were created at a point in time, beginning. 
Not so with God the Son. He is the eternal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So, listen to what it says. Your throne, O God, is forever. Not just forever, but forever and ever. Period. Not period in a sense. In fact, it's a common in our English translation. So, Jesus Christ, according to this verse, is eternally God. He has an eternal throne from which He reigns, and He has an eternal scepter. He rules eternally, and He rules with all uprightness or righteousness. Verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God, Jehovah your God, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Interesting verse. The first part of verse 9 is a continuation of Psalm 45, verse 7. And it has to do with verse 8, which is 45, uh, quoting Psalm 45, verse 6. And the scepter of righteousness. The Son rules righteously because He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We give little, listen church, we give little attention to the fact that there are things that God hates. There are things that God hates. And here the psalmist says, it's wickedness. Proverbs 16, turn with me for a moment there. Proverbs 16 is is even more explicit on this matter. In Proverbs 16, or Proverbs chapter 6, I'm sorry, not 16, but chapter... 6, beginning with verse 16. Proverbs 6, beginning with verse 16. Listen, listen to what he says in verses 16 through 18 of Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Sounds like our election year, doesn't it? But you know what this is? These are the very things God hates. These would be, in God's category, wickedness. And could sum up wickedness very clearly. And so the Son, the eternal Son, who is eternal God, rules with a scepter of righteousness or uprightness, and He rules with that scepter of uprightness or righteousness. And in doing so, He rules justly because He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We'll pause right there for this edition of Crosswalk Radio, and this is the Bible Teaching Radio Ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Our Bible teacher, Pastor Mitch Pridgen, and we thank you for joining us today. We, as always, encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org for more information about this ministry. And we pray that you will tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.